Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to read verses 12 to 20 in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. Um, a couple things I, I want to note at, at the outset here. Number one, uh, this, was, this is a difficult topic. I was not looking forward to studying it. And as things went along this week, it really got exciting for me, some of the, the theological truths that came out during this study. Secondly, I looked at Mike last week and said, here's my passage, here's my topic, good luck picking out songs. Um, number three, parents of children, uh, I am going to try to soften language as much as I can, so I'm going to use some euphemisms such as heinous sin or union to describe the different aspects of it, but I can't avoid some of it. And if you feel like it's too much, I really did try my best to soften it. Uh, I understand if you feel like you need to take uh, your children out. But today we're in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and we see that the, the Corinthian church is engaged in rather shocking behavior. If you look at verse 16, you can see what it is. Members of the Christian church in Corinth were visiting prostitutes in town. Paul says he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. And part of their pagan culture was to engage in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes who worked there. But it, culture or not, it's shocking that the church, uh, no matter how common it is, that the church was involved in this kind of uh, deviant behavior. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, you're going to see two things that, that the Corinthians were doing that Paul needed to correct. The first thing is that they were distorting truth. Um, did I go the wrong way with that? There we go. They were distorting truth. What I mean is uh, they, their misbehavior had deep theological and philosophical foundations in their thinking. Paul quotes two slogans that they were commonly given. The first one is all things are lawful for me, they said. And if your Bible is a modern translation, it's in quotes, right? He's quoting them. All things are lawful for me, they said. And Paul taught them, the reason they were saying that, Paul taught them that they were no longer under the control of the Jewish ceremonial law now that they follow Jesus. But they took it and said, well, now that we follow Jesus, Nothing is out of bounds. Now that we're forgiven, uh, we, we can do anything we want, including this heinous sin is lawful for them. But notice what Paul points out in verse number 12. He says uh, that not everything is helpful and may even be enslaving. All things are lawful for me is what they were saying. And he said, but not all things are helpful. And in that not all things are lawful, they said. And he came back and said, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And so what he's showing them is this argument that everything is lawful, I'm free to live as I want, falls apart when the consequences of our choices come home to roost. And then the second uh, misunderstanding that they had is in their view of the body. And they had kind of a proverb. You see it in verse number 13. The proverb is this. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Now, what do they mean by that? What they meant was hunger is a bodily appetite. And so when you're hungry, eat. In the same way, 
Sex is merely a bodily appetite and of no real consequence or importance. And so when the appetite is aroused, go enjoy it because it doesn't matter. And their thinking was influenced by the culture of the day. Now, in verses 12 to 20, Paul is going to deal with the mistake in their thinking in really thorough way. And what he's going to do, he's going to give five principles about the Christian body that will change their perspective and their um, outlook. And the way he does it is so exciting to me. Paul took theology and showed how practical theology is to everyday life. And he gives five theological principles that you can apply to your day-to-day living here. Um, we are told sometimes, um, but often more subtly, that we must conform to the, the uh, body image ideal that's out in society. Um, we, we're shown all kinds of stereotypes, whether it's on big screen or it's in the fashion uh, houses or it's on the page of a magazine or wherever it is. We're told that to be happy, we must fit in. To be valuable, you must look a certain way. And the idolatry of the body has never been more powerful and prevalent than it is today. It's pervasive everywhere. And it leaves in its wake a great deal of shame and anxiety and insecurity, self-loathing and self-reproach. Well, Paul is going to show us in this passage how that the gospel provides a uniquely different vision of the human body. And he'll do it not by dumbing down truth, by offering a light message He does it instead by pressing home five great theological principles. And what is interesting about the way he does it, he doesn't actually unpack them and explain them. He just mentions them, and the mere mention of these should drive home in our minds what is going on. So he gives a virtual summary of basic Christianity. You could call it Practical Christianity 101. Now get these five truths, press them down into your thinking and into your heart, and you will not likely be swept away by the world's crazy ideas about the body ever again. And with that as my introduction, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will press into our our hearts these five fundamental truths about the Christian, about the way the Christian is to view the body, and that we will never succumb to the body image pressure that we feel and see in our culture today. In Christ's name, amen. Y'all can be seated. As we look over this passage and the five doctrines that Paul mentions, he really doesn't elaborate much on them, like I said. He merely mentions them. It's, it's as if simply seeing them will be enough for us to navigate our way through the whole issue of the body and use it with proper dignity. If you w- would, I would say that some of us, there are some people who have an innate ability to navigate. And then there are some people who they can't even navigate with the GPS in front of them. You know what I'm saying? I was uh, on the, the rescue squad for 12 years, and uh, there was one person, we used the plat books most of the time, uh, GPS uh, was not real reliable where, where we were way up there. And the plat book, I had one, uh, one person who always had to turn the plat book, and there were a couple different times, turn right, and then she would realize that she needed to turn, nope, you were supposed to turn left type deal. So, Matt, that never happens to you guys, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, um, the others of us, sometimes we, we navigate by landmarks, and we see a landmark, and we know what we're supposed to do. And what Paul is doing here is he's showing these landmark truths and by seeing the landmark, it helps us to know how to navigate through these type situations. And the first landmark, the first theological truth that Paul lays out is this, the body is for the Lord. Verse number 13, Paul wants us to understand that. He quotes their slogan, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. What's Paul's response in verse number 13? And God will destroy both one and the other. They were minimizing bodily appetites. If the body wants food, give it food. If the body wants sex, give it sex. It really doesn't matter. Well, Paul says that if that is how we live, we will discover to our shock and dismay one day that God will destroy both the body and the appetites. And then he offers a true perspective. And here's the first doctrinal principle that we see when we think about our bodies. Number one, our bodies are for the Lord. The glory of God. Now, some of us have a hard time believing that. We, we, we tend to think that Christianity is, is intellectual or abstract spirituality. But Paul insists, listen to this. Paul insists that the way we use our hands, the way we use our our eyes, our mouths, and our feet, all of this matters how we use our bodies. God gives us bodies which were meant to give him glory. We exist embodied for the glory of the Lord. We are 
with our bodies to present ourselves, our whole selves, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. Isn't that what the Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 12? Your body, your body in all its frailty, in its weakness, in its inadequacy, in its imperfection, your body, dear believer, in Jesus Christ is for him. It's designed to honor him, to please him, to exalt him, and to give him glory. And so when the world demands that our bodies conform to some stereotype of beauty, isn't it liberating to remember that the correct use of our body is to honor God? It's not for the satisfaction and approval of our peers. When our culture says that our other physical appetites that are mentioned in this passage must be met and do anything else is to be oppressive or even self-harming. When our culture says that, it's actually a pathway to freedom to realize that our appetites do not have ultimate claim on what we do with our bodies. Jesus Christ does. And so we have a body in order to glorify him. That's number one. Number two, not only are our bodies for the Lord, but secondly, there's a bodily resurrection. Verse number 14 this, this second great doctrine, the bodily resurrection, is seen in verse number 14 where he says this, and God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Listen, folks, our bodies have a destiny, just not our souls. Our bodies do too. The Christian hope is concrete and physical and it's solid and embodied. I, I don't think many of us um, think about this very often, but the God who raised Jesus bodily from the tomb on the third day did so so that he might be the firstborn. And what he meant was that he's the firstborn from among the dead so that we might be resurrected also. That one day, the God who raised him will also raise us. One day our bodies will be the mirror of the resurrection glory of the risen Christ. Isn't that exciting? The body has, has dig, dignity and glory. It's not a prison. It's not a mere shell to house the soul. And so Paul wants us to ask ourselves, how we ought to think about our bodies here and now. If God purposes to dignify them with an eternal future, beautifying and glorifying them one day until they mirror the glory of Jesus, can we neglect our bodies now? Can we abuse our bodies now? Can we indulge them? Can we pervert them? No. Paul says that the body... Your body matters to God, and it ought to matter to you. So there's a third truth. So we see the glory of God. We see the resurrection of the body. We also see, thirdly, the union with Jesus Christ in verses 15 to 18. Now this 
is profound, one aspect of it. I want you to catch this uh, in here. This is the great central doctrine of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 15. He says, do you not know? Do you not know what? The answer is that our bodies are members of Christ. Now let that sink in for just a moment. Your bodies are members, not just your souls. Your bodies, not just your mind, but your bodies. Your body is united with Christ and it has huge implications. Think about what it means at the time of your death. Have you ever thought about this? If your body is in union with Christ, then your body is being still united after death. So that means that all your loved ones who are in heaven right now before you, their bodies are resting in the grave, and even that body resting in the grave is still united with Christ. It is a permanent, sacred union in uh, dissoluble. It's mysterious. And because of that union with Jesus, since he rose bodily from the tomb, so will all raise bodily from the tomb who are united with him when he returns on that last day. Praise the Lord for that truth. And look at the way Paul traces out the implications of this truth. It's, it's, he, he traces out for a very specific problem that the Corinthians had in verses 15 and 18. Look at what a question he asks. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, and now he quotes Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, whatever our society tells us, there is no such thing as casual sex. This quotation from Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, provides the warrant for sexual expression in Paul's thinking it establishes the union of Adam and Eve in the garden as the template or blueprint for all of us, reminding us that sex is designed by God to forge the most profound bond between one woman and one man for life within the covenant of marriage. And so this union within marriage, Paul is teaching us, is the closest earthly parallel to the union that believers have with Jesus Christ through faith. Remember, two shall become one fleshed. That mirrors the image of the, of the two, Jesus Christ and us, our bodies being united. It's the same language being used here. He even uses the same verb to describe our connection to Christ that he did in verse number 16. He says, joined. One commentator uh, translated it, glued together. As a husband and wife are glued together, we are glued together to Jesus Christ. And if you are um, 
participating in this perversion of what God has made with somebody who is not your wife or your husband, then you are gluing yourself together. And so how can a Christian join himself to a non-Christian? How can two Christians treat this union as a night's disposable entertainment when it has sacred symbolism and meaning? If you're a Christian, you take Jesus with you into your intimate life. And this sin is profoundly dishonoring to Jesus. But look at verse number 18 again. You'll see something especially defiling. Flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin involves our whole selves, our souls. Um, Paul is teaching us that it involves our minds, our hearts, and our souls. As one scholar put it, because uh, this union is uniquely body joining, when we abuse it, it is uniquely body defiling. We are united to Christ, our bodies are united to Christ, and what we do with them matters profoundly. And so this, this union is so important. Let me go to principle number four, doctrine number four. The glory of God, the resurrection of body, union with Christ, our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches that in verse number 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse number 16, Paul spoke and said that the whole church is the temple of God, which dwells by his Spirit. The whole church, the Corinthians together, Providence Bible Church together, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, he uses the same metaphor to speak to each of us individually and says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just our heart, not just our soul, not just our mind, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ inhabits you, all of you. Your body as well as all your other faculties when you become a Christian, and that makes our bodies, as it were, sacred spaces. Now, I know when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, you don't think of yourself as much of a sacred space, do you? Don't answer that question, okay? Is this how you think of your body? As a sacred space? God himself inhabiting us? Doesn't that change profoundly how we think? Doesn't it challenge us? I think about what I eat. I think about all of our bodily appetites. Do I um, indulge them, abuse them, or distort them? I think about the proneness of our bodies to get hooked on things. It's profoundly challenging it's also deeply encouraging, isn't it? Have you ever thought of it that way, as an encouragement? How? For Paul to call us to live a new life, were he to do that, and here's how it's encouraging, were he to call us to a new life without any other resources, it would mean that we would be in big trouble. But were we to engage in conflict with the old life, with besetting sin and our own energy and strength, we would be in big trouble. If there is any hope 
of making progress, it is because the Christian life has new life inside of them. And that new life is nothing less powerful, if I can use that word, than the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. So the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in us to give us strength. It's not just in our minds and hearts and even our bodies, which are instruments of sin and disobedience, that they might increasingly become instruments to the Lord to bring him glory. He dwells in you, in your body. So there is hope for you that you will not be tomorrow, next week, and in the days to come what you are today, but rather you will be coming more and more an instrument of his good pleasure. So yes, sometimes the battle is fierce, and often we stumble and fall. He dwells in us, and there is hope because he is at work to change us for his glory. And so to me, that is profoundly encouraging. And there's one more truth, one more truth. Number five, so there's the glory of God, the bodily resurrection, our union with Christ, our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and finally, our redemption was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Now look at verses 19 and 20. What does he say? He says, you are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price, so honor God, glorify God with your body. Perhaps the, the, the defining characteristic of our generation is personal autonomy. Would you agree with that? Personal autonomy. We've taken that idea of the autonomous self to an entirely new level today. So now we're told this, that a person can uh, self-identify across lines of gender and sexuality without regard to their anatomy. A person today is who they determine themselves to be. So we invent ourselves in contemporary thought, but that's not how Christians are to think of themselves. We are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not free to invent ourselves or to define ourselves or to identify ourselves however we please, however it may feel to us. Rather, we belong to Jesus Christ. He has purchased us. Uh, we're not to use our bodies as a canvas. Our bodies are to be used for the glory of the Lord. The imagery that Paul uses here is from the slave markets of the ancient world. And Paul is saying, while we boast in our freedom, the truth is that we are slaves to the very things that we think liberate us. And we see that in society. Sexual sin in particular enslaves, doesn't it? We know that. It debases it dehumanizes people. It objects, objectifies other people and strips them of their, of their humanity and their dignity. But we, who by nature are slaves to sin, when we become Christians, we're brought into a different kind of slavery. Jesus purchased us with his own blood on the cross, and under his rule, we find true freedom. So 
we have been brought into the household uh, of Jesus. And now we live under his mastery. We are not at liberty to live as we please. We are not at liberty to use our bodies as if they are ours to do with them what we choose. Christ gave up his liberty. He was, he was shackled. He was beaten. And he was killed and crucified. He paid a terrible price for you. The wrath of God fell upon him for you. And all the guilt of your sin... All the guilt of your sexual sin was paid in full by him and for him. And so now you, believer, in Jesus Christ, you belong to him, body and soul, through and through. You are his. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God with your body. He gave you a body to redeem you and to buy you back and to make you fit for his glory. Well, I want to close with just an illustration that I think would be very helpful. Um, Tim Keller tells of a story of a young woman who came to him after church one day quite shaken. She suddenly realized after hearing him preach the gospel that if salvation were a free gift entirely based upon what Jesus did for her, then there is nothing that he could not ask of her. If there was some contribution that she could make to her own salvation, you know, like we do, like paying taxes to the government, you know, she paid her dues, then there would be a limit to what Jesus could ask of her, a limit to what he expected of her. She's done her part already, but if there was some uh, contribution she could make to her own salvation, she would have paid God off, paid her dues, and now God could just leave her alone and she could live any, any way she wanted. There would be a limit to what he could ask. However, if it was all of grace, all gift, all paid for in full by Christ on the cross, suddenly it struck her there is no limit to what he could ask of her. Because she's not her own, she's bought with a price. Isn't that Paul's point? Isn't that Paul's point? You don't belong to you. You who believe in Christ, you are his. He's in charge. Paul is calling us to bend our knee to the lordship of Christ, believing that under his rule, we find true liberty, true freedom. You are his, so therefore glorify God with your body. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these liberating, liberating truths that we have seen in Scripture. We, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to give in to the pressure of our culture to fit into a certain body ideal. We thank you that our worth is not wrapped up in what our body looks like or what we do with our body, but rather our worth is wrapped up in the fact that we are Christ, that he bought us with a price. I pray that we will think deeply and with clarity about this issue 
and think deeply and clearly about how do we apply the truth that we are Christ, that he owns our body. What does that mean for everything about us? What we desire, what we dream about, what we do with our spare time, how we treat our bodies, and all of these things, Lord, may we remember that we are yours to your honor and to your glory and to your praise. Amen.